Well, it's Father's Day. And it got me thinking, what makes a good father? If you watch TV, any of you watch TV, you see a lot of, there's a huge spectrum of the way that fatherhood is portrayed in our culture. Uh, and I, it got me thinking about what, what do I value? What do I think makes a good father? And I'm incredibly blessed. Um, I got, I have the privilege of, of having an amazing dad, but not just a dad. I have, I have a heritage of men who have demonstrated what it means to be a father. Um, and that's something our culture today does not, they don't get it. They don't recognize it. It's hard to, uh, I mean, even, even the, the idea of it is something that, that people struggle with. What does this mean? And I think really for me, it comes down to two big components that makes a great dad. You ready for them? Two components. One is understanding responsibility. Understanding responsibility. If, if, if dads could get that, and I'm, I think that this is the thing that's been the hardest for me as I've grown up, is understanding my responsibility and, and taking responsibility. And that is such a huge, huge component to what makes a great dad. A great dad is somebody who says, These, this is my family. This is my home. I'm going to take responsibility for, for leading and developing and, and pointing and, and helping it flourish. And then the other thing, and I think this is particularly for Christian dads, modeling repentance. Modeling repentance. And this is a great gift to give to your family, to your kids. And having seen that, having watched a man who says, you know what, all my life is God's and every, everything that I do is his. And that's, that's a huge um, when you grow up with it, you kind of take it for granted. And I hope that our kids have the opportunity to take it for granted, but don't take it for granted. Uh, but that they see what this looks like, to model repentance. And I think that those two components, if, if I could come to the end of my life and live those two things, I think that that would be a good life. What do you think? So I, I just challenge us with that. And uh, I, I guess we probably wouldn't have to model repentance so much if we didn't Botch, botch the responsibility piece so much, um, but that's a huge component to being a good dad. And as I, we are in this book of Hebrews, uh, the author or authors, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, when it talks about we, uh, the author is is talking and has been talking about Jesus. Who's Jesus? And it laid out for us in the first part of this book who Jesus is, uh, and. So as we keep going into the book, it's not only going to be talking about who Jesus is, but what he's done for us, what he's done for us. Something that we recognize is that Jesus never needed to model repentance. He never needed to model repentance. He lived a perfect life, but he modeled taking responsibility for us better than anybody could ever do that. The one who didn't need to repent said, I'll take responsibility. I'll take their punishment. I'll own it. And God, throughout time, has done that for us as humans. The one who doesn't need to repent has said, I'll take responsibility. That's what happens in a covenant relationship. The one who has the responsibility continues to take that responsibility. And God, who ultimately created everything, has reached out to us, and he's called us into relationship with him. And as we continue to walk through this uh, this transition from the old covenant to the new covenant, we see the plan of God and the goodness of God. And it talks 
as we, we talked a couple weeks ago about Jesus and, and this guy named, do you guys remember who we talked about two weeks ago? Melchizedek. Melchizedek, as we talked about Jesus and, and the order of Melchizedek, we see the greatness of God's plan. That three verses mentioned thousands of years ago in Genesis chapter 20 would come up as, as a huge component to understanding the plan of God. Jesus becomes our high priest. That this whole system, the whole mosaic system that was set up through God's working with the people of Israel, it all culminates and points to Jesus. And today we're going to finish Hebrews chapter 7, just a couple verses that reiterate what we talked about a couple weeks ago. And then we're going to jump into chapter 8 today. So we're going to go there, Hebrews 7, 26 through 28. It says this, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever." We just talked about this. Jesus, he didn't need to repent. He didn't need to offer sacrifices for his own sins and then offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. He never sinned, but he came to be that high priest. The reason that the priesthood was set up was to point us to this, this moment of ultimately covering sin, something that no priest could do as we've talked about their weakness, but that Jesus came and he did it. He took responsibility the old way, the old covenant was the series of laws that the priests would try to guide you into. And we still live our lives with those laws, don't we? We still live our lives. But under the old covenant, they would try to, they would come and, they, and the priest would say, you'd say to the priest, I've got a lust problem. I've got a guilt problem. I've got an anger problem. I've got a bitterness problem. I've got a wholeness problem. And there's something in me that's short-circuiting me. And the priest would try and take that and, and they would they would offer a sacrifice for the sin, and then they'd say, now, if you can just do these things, if you can just follow these laws, then you'll find the way. And through generation after generation after generation after generation of struggling with this, they couldn't find the way. They couldn't figure it out. They couldn't find that wholeness, that healing that they longed for. The problem is that the law makes no one perfect. The law does not inspire love. It cannot inspire love. I love the way Andy Stanley puts it. He says, the law can only tell you how low you can go. The law can only tell you how low you can go. How many of you know that? You've experienced enough of your own nature and life to realize that, right? Because what do you see when you see a speed limit sign? That's really the lowest speed that you can drive, right? <laughs> <laughs> Why does it say limit? Anyway, sorry, I was following a police officer the other day, and he was going 80. Anyway, limit. Maybe I'm a little frustrated that I got pulled over a week ago. <laughs> I got pulled over. Sorry, this is totally off the topic. I got pulled over on Pearl Street after leaving Center Street. I didn't even make it a block. Anyway. 
I'm pretty sure the officer thought I'd come out of Oblarney's or something like that, but it was noon. Anyway, and I hadn't. <laughs> the law can only tell you how low you can go. And I, I, I'm thankful for our law enforcement officers, those who put their lives on the line and they, and they walk into situations all the time that they're not sure who they're getting when they pull over to the white Honda Accord. You just never know. That guy, he was, he was suspicious of me. And then he wasn't. <laughs> but you, you just never, the law cannot inspire trust. It cannot inspire anything, really. It can just tell you how low you can go. And so we find this as we read through the Old Testament. As you read through the Old Covenant, you realize this, this, isn't, this isn't the fulfillment that life should be. It isn't. We've talked about this, that every person Regardless of what culture you grow up in, whatever your situation is, every person has some sort of list. They have some sort of list that they try to live by. It's the list that gets them to be able to sleep at night. It's the list that they've put out there to, to try and bring some sort of peace into their world. It's religion. It's the heart of religion. Like, if I can just do these things, then I'll be good. Doesn't satisfy and even Christians, we create this list and all the things that, that go on to it that, that add up to this equation of how to find peace in life. We say, watch your mouth. Don't watch that. Watch this. Vote this way. Do these things. Don't do those things. And we make this list. But we recognize, we have to recognize that lists cannot inspire love. Lists cannot inspire love. They can only tell you how low you can go. Jesus is not interested in conforming us to a pattern of religion, but transforming our hearts. Catch the huge difference there. It's so significant, and yet at times it's so subtle that we slip right back into the list religious mindset, and we just put Jesus' name on it. He didn't come to get us to conform to a pattern of religious thought or a list. He came to transform our hearts. While on the outside, these two things may look similar, they have very different effects on, a, on the heart of a person. Very different effects. As we see throughout Scripture, that those who follow the rules become hard. <laughs> they become hard. Even the most righteous by the law become hard. Whereas those who recognize their faultiness and who recognize their need become soft and accepting of God. This is, what a, this is what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to be the fulfillment of this. He came to be the high priest, the one who satisfies the religious law and yet still becomes a sacrifice for us. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the Hebrew religion. He wasn't just a Jew. He was the reason for the Jews. <laughs> you guys catch that? Jesus isn't just, he wasn't just Jewish. He was the reason for the entire plan of God to set up this system that would point forward to Jesus so that one day these rules, this, this list, would have, we would have an answer for it other than try harder, do better. And it's fitting that he would be our high priest. It's fitting. It's 
perfect. It's a plan that would take the mind of God to create. (laughs) It would take the mind of God to create it. That he could have relationship with us, not based on the things that we accomplish or do, but on what he's done. Hebrews chapter 8, let's move on. It says this. Now the point in what we are saying is this. Now the point in what we are saying is this. There aren't very many times in Scripture where the authors will say things this clearly, right? Usually they leave you to try and figure out what the point is, or they'll have multiple points. But what the author here is saying is, the point of what we're trying to say, all that we've been saying up to now, we are just reading these three verses before this, but it goes all the way back to the beginning of Hebrews. The point of what we're trying to say is this. Pay attention. <laughs> we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Do you catch what's happening here as the author is describing for us in detail uh, a physical space, a physical position where Jesus is, is seated, right? He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is an interesting concept, okay? It's language, it's a word picture that we have to hold on to because in just a moment we're going to come back to that. It says this, it goes on, it says, For every high priest, verse 3, is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. So the high priest in the, in the Levitical system would bring offerings. They would bring uh, an animal. They would bring um, something to offer. And so it's fitting that Jesus, who's the highest of the high priests, would have something to offer. So he comes not just as a greater priest, he comes with a greater gift. Verse 4 says, Now if we were on earth, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. So if Jesus was just a human being born biologically the way like everybody else is, he wouldn't have been a priest because we talked about this a couple weeks ago. He didn't come from the right line, right? According to the law, by human standards, Jesus shouldn't have been the priest. He was from the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. That's all that that verse is saying. He, his priesthood comes from something greater, But then it says this about those high priests. It says, They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So here's the point. Okay, I got to stop there because this is actually just a little nugget for you dads. Follow the directions. (laughs) Do you know that that was in there in scripture? He says, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Do you know that men have been struggling with that since sin entered the world? <laughs> it's like, yes, See, now, if they would have just come out with a tent, the tabernacle, right? Man, I don't think, yeah, they, the people of Israel wouldn't have, yeah, they wouldn't have survived that. Uh, but this is what he's saying. He's saying, This is a copy. This is a shadow. The author is saying this. God spoke to Moses and he said, I want you to build this tabernacle. I want you to build this tent. 
make sure you follow the instructions. Make sure you listen and do it exactly the way that I said. Because what this author is telling us is that God was intending this. He was intending this to depict, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, an image, a picture, a, a, a spiritual reality that's bigger than a tent. It's bigger than a building. It's bigger than just here's how to divide the, the courts of worship. As if God is, is some God that's so concerned about that. What he's doing is he's setting up a reality through the, the physical building that the, that the people would worship in. He's setting up a reality, a picture of what the true presence of God is like. Of what reality should in fact be like. Of what reality is. So we see this copy, this shadow. They were serving a copy or shadow of heavenly things. When you picture heaven, what do you think of? See, in our culture, the way that it's portrayed is as if God is some in a far-off place, like beyond the galaxy. He's in some just really obscure location, and Jesus is there with his, you know, he's got his feet up, and he's watching us on a TV, like, like heaven is out there. And, and part of the reason for that is because we have to use language to describe it, right? Heaven is a place. There is a place. But it's so much bigger than that <laughs> that if we take that and we, and we take that, the words literally and we take it as if this is describing for us what heaven looks like or the position of Jesus that he's literally on God's right side, then it, it, it carries with it all of our human imagery. We have to understand that this is, this is the author's way. This is, the, this is God's way of trying to communicate a position that isn't physical. So he's not talking about a, a physical place. He's talking about a spiritual reality. Okay? Now, when it comes to this tent, we, we have to kind of try and understand what the tabernacle was, what this tent was that God instructed Moses to build. There are three parts to the tabernacle. Three, three parts. There are the outer courts. The outer courts. So this is inside, right? But this is the outer part of the inside. Everyone, every Jew was welcome to come into this area. They could come in and they could offer sacrifices and they could worship and they could give and they could discuss and they could have conversations. And everybody, every person wanted to come in could come into this area. And then there was a dividing wall which divided the outer courts from the holy place. So inside, this is another level and not everyone could come into here. The priests and the Levites could come in. Those who were a part of that system could enter this, and they could come in, and there were, there were places of worship, and there were, special, uh, there were things of special significance that happened inside the holy place. But inside the holy place was a veil, and it wasn't like a thin veil. It was like this huge curtain, and it separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And inside the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant, this is where, this is the, the physical home representation of the presence of God. Now, we have to understand, this has, this has significance, but God's spirit was not encapsulated inside the Holy of Holies. It wasn't. There's times that we talk about God as if he lived. Like, how many of you have seen uh, 
um, Indiana Jones. <laughs> if you haven't, <laughs> you're not missing all that much. <laughs> but uh, there's this scene where the Ark of the Covenant, they're, they're searching for the, the Ark of the Covenant, and it spills open, and everybody, and the, the presence of God comes out and melts everybody's faces. And we have this special significance that's given to the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, because it is a shadow, it is a copy, it is a demonstration of the presence of God to the people. So much so, it's so significant that if the wrong person touched it, they'd die, right? But that doesn't mean that it encapsulated the presence of God, as if God was like, when he was there, he wasn't anywhere else. Just like he's not off beyond the galaxy. So we have this picture of these three, three areas inside the tabernacle, the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. It represents this, to me, it, there's so many connections that could be made as to what this means. But it represents to me this, this idea that in the human heart, there's a longing. There's, we were made to be in the presence of God, but there is something that has separated us. Every person is welcome to worship God. We have this, this general revelation. We can see God's beauty. Every single person on the planet can see him through the things that are made. The fact that we breathe. Did you take, did you take that for granted this morning? Some of you didn't. <laughs> You're going, I'm breathing today. All right. Whew, we're going. The fact that we can breathe, the fact that some days there's sunshine, rain, and all these things, everybody gets to experience that. Then there's a deeper level, the soul level, the relationships that we get to have, and there, there's, there's all this stuff that goes with it, but there's this, there's this area that, that no human being can, can have access to it, but we long for it. It's a picture of a reality that on the other side of this veil, there's something for us. The way that we are created was to be in relationship with God. So God sets up this image, and he tells Moses, do this. This is significant. Build it just the way I told you to build it. Follow the directions. And what happens, this is, this is our religious heart as humans, is the thing that was supposed to have a purpose became the purpose. The thing that was supposed to have significance became the thing that they worshipped. The people of Israel took the picture, the image, the shadow, the copy, and it became more important to them than the real thing. We have a tendency to do this. We still do this today. But this copy was exposed the day that Jesus died on the cross. This copy was exposed at the crucifixion of Jesus. One of the things that it says in the scripture is that when he died, when he breathed his last, that veil that separated the presence of God from the unholy people was shredded. It tore in two. And the presence of God in, in picture is set free, right? As if he was contained by it. There's this image, there's this picture of what happened when Jesus died on the cross. All of it set up by this system that God put in place to communicate something to people, to us today. Even though we didn't grow up with a Jewish background, 
this image still has significance for us today because it paints a picture that our world doesn't understand. They don't understand that there is a veil between them and ultimate joy in life, that there's a veil between them and the reason that they were created, and that there's no human being who has the right to enter through that veil other than Jesus, that there's no way to have access to that other than through Jesus, that when he died on the cross for our sins, the veil tore. Now through him, that is opened up. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that just, it gives me goosebumps. It gets me excited. But you have to understand that the danger of every human heart is to still try and figure out a way to get there on our own. It's still to try, and man, if you don't think this is true, just look at the craziness of the Christian religion over the past couple millennia. I mean, I, I think that there's no better example than the Crusades to take something that was supposed to have significance and turn it into the purpose. But we still do this. We still try and come up with something. I mean, it, it happens in our own hearts, but it happens on a big scale. We have to recognize there's nothing that gets us to peace. There's nothing that gets us to joy. There's nothing that gets us to ultimate satisfaction through that veil other than the blood of Jesus Christ. The copy is exposed. The shadow is exposed. The image is, is made whole. It tells us why when he died on the cross. This is what it says in Hebrews 8, 6, and 7. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. The old covenant had a promise. The promise was this. Follow these rules and do what I said and things will go well for you. If you break these rules, if you don't follow these laws, I'm going to have to destroy you. <laughs> that sums it up. Okay? And we see God's grace even throughout the Old Testament. Some people think that the Old Testament is about law and justice, but it's so full of grace, people. <laughs> God should have just, he, just, he did have to destroy them once, but he didn't wipe them all out. His grace is all through it. But the promises that are enacted in Jesus it says this. It says, I took your destruction. I took it. And now I want to come and transform you from the inside out. Anybody want promise number one? Didn't think so. <laughs> Pick two. <laughs> Pick two. It's a better covenant. Its mediator is better. Its promises are better. Verse 7 says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. If the first covenant had been, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, if the law was, was really what it was supposed to be, if it was really supposed to be the thing that could bring us into the right relationship with God, then there would have been no need for Jesus. Verse 8 through 12, this is, this is where it gets really good. This is quoting from the Old Testament. This is Jeremiah chapter 31 that the authors are quoting. Verse 8 says, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers 
on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. It says this, the old covenant was made through Moses when they first, and when he came off the mountain, he came carrying 10 commandments. But this covenant goes back even further. It goes back to Abraham. It goes back to Adam and Eve. And God said, do this. Don't do that. He said, you can have everything. Don't eat that fruit. Man, they started with one rule. They couldn't even keep that. And some people, in their logic, they, try and they, they think God was, he must not have had a good plan. Why did he create humans with such a terrible internal character that they would do that? And you just have to, you just have to recognize it's because Jesus. <laughs> because there's a better way to relate with God than on my behavior. It's Jesus. From the very foundation of the world. Jesus. So we see the human heart unable to keep the one rule. Then Moses gets 10 commandments, and from there it expands. So they put rules around the rules to keep them from breaking the system. But what if the law was not given to merely be obeyed? What if it was given to reveal we can't? What if the law wasn't given to just merely be obeyed, but what if it was given to reveal that we can't? And that in our failure, we would find our hearts ready for a Savior. In our failure, we'd find our hearts ready for a Savior. That God, the creator of all things, didn't just want to be worshipped. He wanted relationship. He didn't want to be just worshipped as a savior, but we talked about this early on in the series, that Jesus would come and parachute in, get to know us, love us, and, and call us to relationship with him. It's a different kind of relationship with Jesus as our savior than merely to have somebody throw a line down from a helicopter and pull us out. That Jesus came, that we'd be known and loved that the law, it cannot produce love. It cannot motivate you enough. I know that there are many people who have horror stories of belonging to churches that just suck the life out of people, <laughs> beat them up, and it's all based on this and that, doing this and not doing that. And people keep failing, and, people, and then they, they get stuck in this cycle of pretending. And the church becomes full of people who, on the outside, look like they've got it all together, but inwardly have worse sins. They have worse sins because it's secret. And, and here we are as a, as, a, as a group of people saying, we believe a Savior who covers our sins, and yet we try to cover them. And I know in this room we've experienced that. You've had run-ins with the religious Christian. Some of us have been that. We have to recognize that we're given a better covenant. Not based on what we can do. Not based on how well you perform the law. Based on a better promise. That's 
the covenant that we get to be a part of, to pass on. Verse 10 says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This, This image of writing the law on their mind and in their hearts, significant because in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, they're commanded, the people are commanded to write the law down and carry it with them all the, all the time. How many of you have done this? Like you have a specific task you know you need to do, so you write a sticky note and you put it on like the mirror so you don't forget? We have nowadays, we have reminders on our phones, some of us, that hopefully keep us from forgetting the task that was very significant. This is God's way of saying, I want you to do that. So what, are you, what you're going to do is you're going to write it on this and that. You're going to put it on your forehead. You're going to put it on your wrist. You're going to put it on the doorpost of your house. Everywhere you look, you should see the law. And the hope is, the, the hope was this. If it's everywhere, if everywhere you look, you'll see it, you won't be able to break it because you'll constantly be thinking about it. The problem is, if it's not in here, you close your eyes. <laughs> you can go to a place in your world where that person can't treat you that way, and you can, you can get them back. Because the mess is inside of us. It's not just on the outside. So this, this scripture is saying in this new covenant, this new covenant with the house of Israel, I will write it on their hands. I, I will write it on their minds, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jesus is saying, here's the new way. Instead of you writing it down all over the place, instead of you setting up reminders on your phone, I'm going to put it inside of you. I'm going to come and I'm going to live inside of you. I'm going to write it on your hearts. I'm going to write it on your minds. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to be with you all the time. This is so significant, church. Something happened the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost happened. We celebrate, we celebrate Christmas and we celebrate Easter. We celebrate the resurrection Something so significant happened on the day of Pentecost. As the believers were, were waiting, and, and Jesus said, I'm going to send you a, a helper. I'm going to send you a better. This is going to be better than if I stayed. I'm going to send you a helper. And he's going to come, and he's going to be the one that's going to live with you, and he's going to write these laws inside of you, and he's going to transform you. And that day happened, and people, people's lives were changed. It's so important that we recognize the power of, and the promise of the Holy Spirit. And I talk about this sometimes, and, and I don't think I can overstate this, that the power of God lives inside of you. If you believe and if you trust in him, he wants to come and live inside of you. That the, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead wants to live in you. Isn't that, it's just incredible. It's, it's too big for words. It's too big to understand. That he wants to come, the power of God who raised Christ from the dead, that brings light and life, new mercies every morning, a present help in time of need. He brings knowledge and wisdom. He brings healing. He brings courage in the face of challenge. He brings power for living. That he wants to come and be in us and live in us. That's what Jesus did for us. If we just continue to trust him. He's not in a box inside on the other side of a veil. He's not in a 
set of laws. He wants to live in us. This is what verse 11 says. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. From the least of them to the greatest. For those who have this experience of being a part of this covenant and understanding what happened when Jesus tore, when the veil tore, for those of you who are part of that, you're part of a community. You're part of a family. No longer is it like the old system where it was, you need to hear this from me, that there were those of special significance saying, no, in this new covenant, they're going to know me because I'm going to be in them. They're going to know me from the least of them to the greatest. How many of you have met somebody you never knew before and you come to find out that they have faith in Jesus and there's an instant connection? It's incredible. Oftentimes it takes us meeting somebody else that's not a part of our normal life to kind of have that experience. That's the way the community of the church should be, that we have more in common with this group than anything else, even if we have nothing else in common. That we are a part of this, and they shall know me from the least to the greatest. That salvation is the great unifier, and it is a gift of grace, not based on anyone's experience, not based on anyone's uh, exceptional abilities. It's based on Jesus. That knowing the Lord and being known by him is not a future occurrence. It's not something that he's withholding from you. It's not brought on by discipline. It is an awakening of the soul by the Holy Spirit of God. It's an awakening. It isn't just knowledge. It's an awakening of the soul by the Holy Spirit of God. It's been even described as being reborn, being born again. There's a reason for that kind of language. Because it's meant to be that significant in our lives. That now we no longer have this one birth, the birth of the body, the birth of the flesh and the soul, but we have a birth in the spirit. That we recognize that the power of God is with us. That's what the author is trying to impress upon them. That this new covenant isn't just one of physical birth. It's one of spiritual birth. It's a reality of God as our father. Not just because he's the creator of the world, but because he's given birth to our spirit and he's renewed us and refreshed us. This is what it says in Hebrews 8.12. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. When Ember first started to walk, I don't think she actually knew what she, she didn't know what she was doing, right? And you have had kids that have gone through that. They don't know what they're doing. Their head weighs so much that if, you let, if they're standing and you let go of them, one of two things is going to happen. Either they're going to start to walk or they're going to fall down. The head just kind of goes, boom. So for, I don't know how long it took us, but I would prop Ember up and hold her, and Kayla would stand there like this, and we'd just kind of hope that the, the, the inertia of the fall would get her to walk. Right? I have video of this. It's hilarious. So we set her up, and she goes, boom, falls. And then we set her up again, and this way falls. And then we set her up again, and she takes three steps towards Kayla, and we celebrate. 
Woo, she walked. She took her first steps. She has no clue what she's doing. She's just trying to keep her head from hitting the floor. <laughs> that step led to another step as we continued to prop her up until she was taking six steps in a row and then eight steps in a row or three, two, three, five is how she's counting right now. Anyway, <laughs> and we celebrate every single time. We celebrate every step. We celebrate. We don't go, oh, she fell. What is wrong with this kid? Her mom can walk. I can walk. Why can't she walk? We don't treat children that way. When you see a kid walk, there's celebration. To this day, she runs now. It's, it's so fun to watch her run. And watching a toddler run is probably like one of the greatest joys in life because it's just flailing. And usually she's got a big grin on her face. And she's playing this game with us right now. Well, she'll back up to the tile and she'll look at me. And then she just breaks into this huge smile and she goes, come on. And she throws her arms wide and runs to me. And then she goes back and she does it over and over and over. Anyway, sorry. But she's falling. She skinned her knees the other day. She cries. She hits her head. And you know what I don't do? I don't scold her. <laughs> I don't get on her. I don't tell her, what is wrong with you? Why are you falling? No. But I do find myself picking her up, letting her cry, and kissing boo-boos, and putting Band-Aids on knees. That's the picture that we see in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. This is our father. He's not a dad who's up there going, get it right or I'm going to kill you. No, he's there going, if you understood me, if you knew me, you'd know. I'm so thrilled with every step. You fall down, I'm going to pick you back up. I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to set you back on your feet. I'm going to kiss the boo-boos. <laughs> we may need to bandage you. <laughs> but I'm here. I love you. He's not going to scold you for falling. He's going to celebrate the steps. That's the way the church should be. As we watch our brothers and sisters learn to walk. Sometimes we go great. We just have this great streak of growth. It's awesome. We should celebrate that. And when there's falls, we need to be a place that says, hey, it's okay. Get back up. Get back up. Don't go back that way. Keep going this way. He will remember their sins no more. Most of us beat ourselves up over the falls. Right? It's that old, that old system. <laughs> it's still there. It's still, it's just clinging. It's like flesh. <laughs> Can't get away from it. <laughs> and it clings to us, and, it, and it, it pulls us back down. It pulls us back into this, if I fall, I'm a failure. God can't love me. <laughs> and it's new covenant. It's one that says, no, I love you. I love you. I put these laws out there to make you feel terrible. I put these laws out there to help you live. And I don't want to just put them out there as some standard. I'm going I'm to take your punishment, and I'm going to help you. 
but we still come back. We still fall. We still stuck with this. That's what verse 8, 13 says. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Do you catch this? He makes the first one obsolete means done. But what is becoming obsolete and growing old is vanishing away. Catch that? That means it's done, but it's also still happening. As long as we are bound to this flesh, the law still has a power to pull us back. It still has the power and the ability to tell us you're wrong. It still has, it still potentially has power. That's why when you read a book like the book of Romans, and you read Paul's description of Romans chapter 7, and then Romans 8, what happens with the new life that we have in the Holy Spirit is now there's no condemnation when we fall. We have a father who's going, get back up. Get up, bud. I love you. Keep running. Keep stumbling. Keep running. Keep moving forward. Keep growing. It's growing old. It's becoming obsolete. It's ready to vanish away. If he makes it obsolete, why do we keep being pulled back into it? Some of you don't even recognize you do it. You do it. You do it with your spouse. You do it with the people in your life. You still, you still hold on to that old system. You're like, if I let go of that system, how can I, how can I push them towards excellence? <laughs> and he's saying, try love. Try grace. The standard doesn't get lowered under Jesus. It gets raised. But he says, I'm going to come and be in you. <laughs> It's incredible. Something we have to recognize is that as long as the flesh exists, the law will persist. The law still serves a purpose as it keeps us humble and keeps us recognizing our need of a Savior. Until the day, this bag of bones, (laughs) which is growing older, by the way, until it's ready to vanish and become obsolete. It grows old, and some of you experience that every day. Feels like that day is getting closer and closer. Tell it what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. We talk about this idea. Every single one of us is heading that direction. Did you know that it's a part of the good news? <laughs> because there's a day coming that you're not going to be bound to the law anymore. Not going to be bound to the flesh anymore. Not going to be stuck, stumbling, and falling anymore. You're going to fly. Or whatever it's going to be like in heaven. <laughs> I've been able to attend the memorial services of both my grandfathers. And it was so cool because both of them loved Jesus. We sang. We didn't sing country songs. <laughs> we didn't sing songs about how great they were. We sang about Jesus. We sang about grace. It's a legacy. I know that a day is coming, hopefully many, many years from now, where that will be the case for my dad, and it will probably be the largest singing event in Lewis County history. <laughs> and then after that, hopefully, <laughs> no one knows, someday, be my time. 
there'll be a service for me. Because this bag of bones is growing old and is ready to vanish away. It's becoming obsolete. (laughs) Same with the law. And on that day, I hope the songs that are sang are not about a great man, about a great Jesus, about a great grace. That no matter what heritage you come from in this room, no matter what your earthly father was like, you have the ability to be a part of the legacy. You have an ability to set a different trajectory for your family, no matter how many times you failed. Isn't that so great? It's not about being perfect. It's not about doing all things right. It's about pointing to Jesus, the one who tore the veil, the one who says, I'm going to come to you. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest to experience that kind of covenant with the God who takes responsibility for us if we continue to turn to him. We're a part of the covenant of grace. I hope that we leave that for our kids. Unlike the, the old covenant, so you catch that in that passage, that their fathers, they failed to pass it on. They failed. I hope that with the new covenant, because it's so much better, that we can't fail. We can't fail to pass it on because it's not about us. It's about Jesus. I'm going to pray this morning, and I'm just going to... I'm going to encourage us to just give thanks, not just for earthly fathers, for God, our Father, who he's modeled what it looks like to take responsibility, and he's given us this gift, and we're going to come and we're going to receive communion. We're going to sing. Could you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you so much. Thank you for the plan that you laid many, many, many years ago, before the foundation of the world. It's good. It's a good plan, and you don't need my approval or our approval, but we're so grateful to be a part of it. And I pray in this room that if there are those who, who are, are wondering, if, they, if they've had that awakening, I pray that your Holy Spirit just as the day on Pentecost, the day of Pentecost would come and fill them, would revive them, would awaken them to the reality of what you've done, to the reality of relationship with you, that we don't have to go through this life based on our performance, but because of what you've done, we have, we have the heritage of kids of God (laughs) that those words they just don't communicate so we need your Holy Spirit to speak a truth to us in our souls that's bigger than what our words can understand and our ears can understand that you've loved us and that you've called us by your grace to enter into relationship with you we thank you This morning as we come and we receive communion, I pray that you would remind us of the free gift that it is to anyone who recognizes their need of a Savior, that you have said, I'm here, take this, remember me. This 
bread represents my body broken for you. This cup represents my blood shed for you. We thank you for that gift. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.